Hello and welcome to this Energy Risk podcast on the energy transition. In our last episode, we looked at climate change and the energy transition from the point of view of investors and asset managers, and we asked how they price transition risk into their portfolios or their assets, and how capital needs to be allocated in order to facilitate the move to the low carbon economy. Today, we're focusing on the transition from the point of view of energy firms and energy intensive organisations, and we're looking at the steps that they're taking in their own transition. So we'll be discussing things like the metrics being used to measure and communicate progress in this, what is a fairly nascent discipline, and the the sorts of solutions that are being used by firms to reach their environmental goals. I'm Stella Farrington, Head of Content for Energy Risk, and I'm joined today by two people who are very involved with this topic. Firstly, we have Erica Bierschbach. A Vice President in Energy Market Operations and Resource Planning at Austin Energy, and Scobie Mackay, a, manage, a Managing Director in the Commodities and Global Markets Group at Macquarie. Welcome to both of you. So, Erica, if I could start with you first, please. Um, you're sort of very much at the cutting edge of Austin Energy's transition plans. Could you talk them through for us? Tell us about what the company's trans- transition goals are, sort of timelines, and what you're doing to achieve them. Yes, absolutely. Um, good morning, Stella, um, Scobie. Thank you for um, uh, this podcast. Um, Austin Energy is uh, Austin Energy is going to be carbon free by 2035 or sooner. Um, we established interim carbon free targets to be able to uh, get us to that to that end, to that goal. Currently, Austin Energy stands at 63% carbon free and 23% of that is nuclear. By 2025, uh, we're gonna be at 86% and by 2030, 93%. So we have some pretty aggressive goals, um, but we have a, a, a pretty solid plan to get there. And so to start off uh, this year, when we passed our resource plan uh, in the spring, we, we made a formal acknowledgement that Austin would know, would not purchase or build any carbon generating assets. Um, so that had just never been made as a formal acknowledgement before. And so uh, we, we, we put that in the plan. Second, we're retiring um, our vintage steam units. Uh, one is actually uh, is retiring next month. And, uh, and then the larger unit uh, is retiring next year um, in the fall. Uh, same time, same time frame, just uh, one year later. We'll also exit a portion of our, uh, actually, we own part of a coal plant, and uh, we'll be exiting that um, at the at the end of 2022. Uh, so, so, so those retirements are some significant steps uh, for us uh, achieving our carbon-free goals. And then the remaining gas fire generation in our portfolio we're actually applying a strategy that balances affordability and carbon reduction. So essentially we're carving out an up to spend amount uh, that we will uh, allocate each year um, and which aligns with our affordability metrics. And uh, essentially we'll generate less and less from our fossil fleet year over year. And so what this does, it provides a glide path for emerging technology to become both economic and uh, and a a suitable environmental alternative for the last amounts of the dispatchable generation that we can control in our portfolio. 
so those are some of the that's kind of the high level um, view of you know how we are getting to carbon free uh, by 2035. Thank you. And just to check on the the difference between carbon free and carbon neutral. With carbon free, you're you're actually meaning no generation from fossil fuels. Is that right? That's correct. So scope one emissions, uh, we are essentially uh, we are not offsetting with any type of uh, carbon offsets or anything like that. We are um, eliminating uh, fossil fuel from our fleet, and that's why we're allowing ourselves that 15 year glide path uh, to be able to give the market the opportunity to um, essentially reach our affordability goals. Yes, thank you. And presumably you're able to to reach for this goal, as it were, because you you don't have to maintain um, fossil fuels, you know, you, presumably you know, natural gas for backup for your renewables reliability. Is that right? That's that's correct. So I'm in the ERCOT market um, and our ISO is responsible for reliability. I, I am not. Um, uh, we do own the wires in our service territory, and we are responsible for, for the reliability with regards to the transmission portion of uh, what we own in the grid. But uh, as far as the reliability of generation, uh, that is not m- my responsibility. That is, I, I essentially buy everything from the grid uh, that I need, and then I sell everything I have uh, to the grid. So I am looking to uh, add generation that is going to add value to uh, our portfolio, whether in the form of a hedge to our customers um, or offsetting costs, so generating revenue. Yes, okay, thank you. Um, Scobie, could I bring you in here now? Um, it's really interesting to hear the decarbonisation agenda of the firm. So thank you so much for that insight, Erica. Um, Scobie, could could I ask you, what are you seeing across um, all the many companies that you deal with? Um, because there's obviously, you know, so many different ways that firms can firstly set their, their climate goals and then set out to achieve them. Are, are there any major trends that you're seeing? Yeah, I think one of the trends that we are seeing is certainly if you look at what I would consider to be the front edge of, of, of this market is um, sophisticated players taking a very integrated whole of supply chain approach to decarbonisation. There's been an interesting example recently with Apple's uh, announcement of taking its entire supply chain carbon neutral by 2030. And I think that's not a bad case study for how I think others will increasingly see this space. If you look at Apple's announced strategy here, they have um, taken a multifaceted approach to decarbonisation of, the, of their supply chain, and that that includes um, a focus on recycling and recovery of, for example, in their case, rare earth metals and other things that are used in 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 their in their products. It includes a focus on energy efficiency, so reducing absolute consumption at its plants and plants uh, of its suppliers along its supply chains. Uh, it includes a focus on renewable energy and Apple has been a real driver in this not only of purchasing renewable energy but also investing directly in renewable energy assets as a way of demonstrating genuine additionality um, in terms of bringing new projects to the market. It includes a focus on processes and materials so for example 
uh, Apple are working on zero carbon aluminium um, as one of their um, strategy pieces in, in in that in that bucket. And lastly, it, it focuses on offsetting. So uh, Apple have a nature-based solutions offsetting initiative uh, where they are looking at mangrove restoration and other significant uh, natural carbon sinks. And I think that multifaceted approach is one that we'll see more and more uh, as um, corporates, you know, come to the realization that decarbonisation is inherently a broad, uh, far-reaching set of inter interrelated initiatives, and not just one solution for for for, for any corporate. Um, we see in fact that um, as corporates do catch up with some of the leaders in the market there is going to be a realization that the scale and scope of change that's required over this decade is is huge and we think that things like carbon offsets um, will be an important bridge into some of the more structural decarbonization that 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 is required but that will take a decade or more to roll out and quite a lot of capex expenditure to to integrate along supply chains. Yes, okay. So are you saying that I mean essentially not all companies are able to be as aggressive with their transition plans as perhaps Austin Energy is being at the moment that you know offsets have to be as you said a, br a bridge that that many companies will need to take before they can think about becoming carbon um, free? I think that's absolutely right. And the, the answer will vary from from uh, industry to industry and, and actor to actor. But fundamentally, I think that there is a, a, a wide and growing appreciation for the fact that we are going to need to use every lever at our disposal to realise the degree of change that's required to get anywhere near a Paris aligned climate outcome. And I think that certainly in some of the harder to decarbonise industries, uh, that realisation is setting in. And I think we will see more and more this idea of using things like high quality carbon offsets as a bridge into structural decarbonisation as, as being one of the tools that particularly those hard to decarbonise industries will, will need to rely on in order to get anywhere near a Paris aligned outcome or, or their own um, climate ambitions. Okay. Um, Erica, when you talked about your decarbonisation plans earlier, you know, they're very clear, very clear targets. But I imagine behind that, there was an awful lot of thought, sort of sweat and tears went into deciding how to you know, what was right for you. Could you talk us through some of the challenges around planning and embarking on your decarbonisation plan? Sure. Um, so, you know, I think uh, our particular plan, uh, we uh, we understood that uh, we had to understand what our customers uh, wanted, but we also needed to quantify the risk uh, associated with uh, their their plans or, or their uh, their desire for decarbonization. So we first we we quantified the market risk of removing our fossil fuels completely from our portfolio and not being able to protect our customers from high-priced events. So not having that dispatchable generation, uh, 
Uh, we are in a market that uh, has a $9,000 uh, megawatt hour cap, and uh, we don't have a capacity market. So, um, you know, our real-time prices uh, with uh, real-time adders can, can get above that, and, and they have gotten there, uh, particularly last year in 2019. We had a week uh, hitting the, getting over the cap uh, three days in one particular week in August. So uh, we were able to, to quantify uh, the risk of not having that dispatchable generation. And then we also... I took another step where uh, we worked to quantify what it costs to remove a ton of carbon from the atmosphere, given various efforts our stakeholders want us to pursue. So renewable energy, uh, distributed uh, generation, uh, demand response, energy efficiency, and those are difficult to kind of put on a level playing field. Um, but uh, we worked to uh, quantify the cost associated uh, per ton of carbon, depending on the effort. And so by showing our how large of an exposure our customers would have being completely carbon free today uh, without an affordable environmental alternative, and then lining up the kind of current carbon free solutions from least cost to most expensive. Uh, the path became more clear and easy to build uh, and, and, and to be able to uh, work with our customers uh, to come up with a solution. Um, it became more transparent where we could get the biggest bang for our buck uh, using a market-based solution that committed a certain amount of revenue that we wouldn't receive in return for a certain amount of carbon reduction from our fleet that was already projected and committed to. So uh, we maintain the protection, giving emerging markets, like I said, the time to arrive at the price points that we need to meet our affordability metrics. We forego revenue today uh, and each year, reducing carbon generation until we've achieved a carbon-free portfolio. And um, I'll say our cost to remove carbon is coming in at $4 a ton. And this number beats carbon markets in the Northeast and the West currently. So, uh, you know, we're, we're removing it as cheaply as possible and, uh, and we're doing it today. So we really needed to look at quantifying the risk, showing the exposure, looking at the alternatives, pricing them out, and then coming up with a path that, you know, met both of those metrics, economics as well as environmental. So that was, you know, the, the challenge was, was being able to come up with those numbers and, and, and work through what everything meant uh, with our customers. Um, but once they understood uh, what those risks were, once they understood the costs, that the, the path uh, that we that we provided was 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 much easier for people to jump on board and agree to. Yes, okay, thank you. And as you go further out in time towards becoming carbon free, are you going to be um, relying on, or are you factoring in the use of some technologies which are perhaps untested at the moment or or not uh, fully developed? Absolutely. And that is, you know, that's, uh, you know, part of the risk, right? We're relying and, and looking forward to the market continuing to come our way. And, you know, that that's that's another risk. Um, our, our, our strategy right now is a market-based solution, but we are, we intend to invest in technologies that support 
a carbon-free energy portfolio. So we, we go out and take a pulse of the market each year. Uh, we've been doing that, uh, and sometimes more than once a year, we've been doing that for the past four, five, six years. And, um, you know, we uh, work with developers. We, we look at unsolicited offers. It's a way for us to know the market here in Texas uh, and where the value uh, is 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 being developed as it needs as it meets our portfolio. So our portfolio is pretty diversified. We have renewable energy all over the state, uh, and, and uh, you know we are looking at batteries uh, and storage to see uh, when we can not if but when we can start adding those to our portfolio. Okay, thank you. So Scobie, at what stage do firms tend to come to you? Have they already set their goals? Do they have a good idea of what they want to do or is that part of what you take them through? We see a whole spectrum uh, in terms of our, our clients. Some have quite advanced, well-planned climate ambitions and we're helping them with the implementation of specific parts of that. In other cases, we're really working to bring a whole of Macquarie offering to clients uh, and help them to design a decarbonisation roadmap. So. For example, in the mining industry at the moment, we are discussing with, with multiple clients around the idea of using a combined set of offsets plus on-site renewables plus over the medium to longer term, for example, hydrogen fleet switching as a bundled decarbonisation roadmap strategy for clients. So it, it really depends. I think more and more clients are realising that um, there isn't a uh, isolated solution or, or one or two solutions that can get them where they need to be and they really are taking a step back and looking at a whole of business decarbonisation strategy and many of them are still beginning on that journey. Right yes and could we move now into um, perhaps getting a bit more granular in terms of this discussion and look at some of the the metrics that are being used to to track and communicate climate risk and climate progress. Um, with this being still such a nascent area, um, you know, it's not hugely standardised in terms of how companies are assessing and communicating their transmission plans. Um, Erica, could you talk about where you stand as a company um, on this? Are you seeing cross-industry standardisation or is it something that you're still talking about um, as an organisation yourself, how to sort of come up with the right carbon metrics? Uh, so, Austin, this is a, a very, uh, we have enormous interest in this area, and we've been doing uh, some solid work really to determine, you know, the carbon metrics we should be focused on. Uh, we're, one of our business units is working with a company called Watt Time that does, that measures real-time carbon intensity. Um, and we're uh, looking to incorporate some of those metrics for some of our kind of more granular goals that are in our resource plan. So uh, Austin's Office of Sustainability has been working across our community to align carbon metrics and reporting so then we can set further goals that we can show progress on. So Austin Energy reports the scope one emissions I mentioned earlier and walked through from our generation fleet, which is you know, what our carbon-free targets are tied to. Additionally, we have renewable goals that are measured actually as a percentage of our customers' consumption. And that's that's a metric that, that we derived ourselves as a way to be able to represent, you know, that, uh, that target. 
um, to add, you know, we have local solar goals, demand response and energy efficiency goals. But again, those, you know, tying those to carbon metrics is what we're focused on. Very, very interested in um, currently getting to granular levels of what is my real renewable percentage, not just annually, but monthly and hourly, because it can be so lopsided. That can really help drive the decisions we make in the future as to where to be able to focus our decarbonization uh, efforts. Uh, so uh, being able to get more and more granular, be transparent, uh, and like you use the word, I, I like the word, you know, standardizing it. We're, we're part of that effort to to try and, and, and work to doing that across, uh, you know, across the nation and, and across the globe to, to, to try and figure out what's the right way to be able to, to, to show these uh, carbon reduction uh, efforts. But there's a lot of different I think, uh, work going on out there. And um, uh, we have different teams that are working on that as well. Okay, thank you. Um, Scobie, can I turn to you now and ask, what are you seeing in terms of the, the sort of fact that this is such a, nas a nascent discipline in terms of things like metrics and standardization? Are you seeing any, uh, you know, where are you seeing standardization happening? Yeah, I mean, I think looking at it from a commodity supply chain perspective, the the simple fact of the matter is that most of the assets along commodity supply chains were never designed with the intention of being able to measure accurately greenhouse gas emissions. And so even one step prior to standardization is a focus on actually just getting good data. Uh, and that is one of the challenges that we see. We see a real opportunity to actually help if you like, in the retrofitting of supply chains with equipment that is providing better GHG monitoring because standardization only really comes once you have data to, to measure, I think. Um, in parallel, though, there is standardization efforts happening. And certainly, for example, in the natural gas space, there is quite a lot of work going on in the US uh, amongst people like the Rocky Mountain Institute and and uh, industry actors who are working to come up with um, agreed approaches to measuring methane leakage and, and other greenhouse gas emissions data from wellheads um, across the US. Um, and though that has its own um, particular challenges where you have a, a a very complex and sophisticated gas network where in theory at least all of the gas molecules in that network are fungible um, uh, and so from a measurement and standardization perspective it poses quite a few challenges what we're seeing is uh, in the commodity space at least an emergence of a focus on carbon intensity um, I think that the California low carbon fuel standard is an interesting paradigm setting uh, example of that where they have a, a carbon intensity index associated with, with um, liquid fuels. We think that there will be an increased sort of focus on carbon intensity as a, as a measure of both quality and price as we move forward through this decade in, in, the, in the commodities markets. In terms of standardization, I, it will take longer uh, for 
different segments of the industry to work through that. But the fundamental approach that we are taking, and I think we see others taking in the market, is to use the best available data at hand uh, and then to be conservative and add buffers or carbon coefficients to that data in, in, in order to ensure that um, there is not an under-accounting uh, of carbon in, the, in, in these supply chains until such time as more robust data is, is available from, from the ground up. Yes, okay, thank you. Um, could we move now on to the topic of the COVID-19 pandemic and what that has done to people's carbonisation agendas? Um, you know, there seems to be a, a two ways of looking at it. You know, either that the the, the demand shock for for fossil fuels has sort of done a lot of a lot of good and lowered emissions, but that um, people will be keen to come back and, and you know start on an economic recovery at, at any cost, as it were. Other people feel that we've had such a a, a shock. There was such a, um, you know, this was such a black swan event that we need to really be mindful now of of the next one, which could be the climate catastrophe. Erica, what what are you seeing? So Austin has, um, you know, seen the same kind of move from the CNI uh, load to the residential load, and um, so overall that impact has been. You know, kind of small for us. Uh, we're we're still able to uh, deploy our strategy as well as us kind of coming into the pandemic with a strong financial position. So we haven't had to revisit like the budgeted amounts that we carved out to apply our strategy. So I'm talking about our you know kind of our carbon reduction strategy that you know we're you know that we have. Uh, committed to. Um, and so in that sense, you know, we haven't seen too big of an impact, but when you talk about kind of things getting back to normal, if you will, and, you know, will we start to see some pressures, you know, that, you know, maybe have been somewhat muted this year. I'm not, we're not seeing, you know, here in Austin, we're not seeing, you know, like I said, too much of a transfer of the load. What we believe is, is with the kind of telework move that has occurred across, you know, the industry, across various, you know, impacted so many different uh, businesses across our um, city. And, you know, the fact that we have had so many people move to Austin and, you know, it's going to create such a different opportunity for businesses to be able to still potentially thrive post-pandemic. But, their employees to really work from home because everybody's been tested. You know, our industry is is a typical is a, a perfect one because you know we're a very old industry, the utility industry, and you know we have essentially less than ten percent of our employees are considered essential and have to be in the office. So, having said that, I think that's really going to change the dynamic post pandemic. And I think that you're not, you know, you, you know, we, we still have our business, you know, our CNI, you, we don't have a lot of CNI, so I, I can't speak to that. I mean, we, we, we see them as not really having interrupted, you know, too much of their, of, of their business. So for our small kind of, you know, view, um, we're hopeful that we can continue to deploy our strategy and all of our target could stay intact. So 
that's just for us. But, you know, you know, we're at one city in Texas. Mm-hmm. Scobie, what are you seeing that, you know, low oil prices, have they meant that people have dialed down on the urgency of some of their environmental goals? No, in fact, I'd probably say the opposite. I think that what we're seeing is a few things. Um, I think that, you know, with the write downs that we've seen a lot of the oil majors make and related news in that sphere, I think there is a view that from a capital perspective, capital is moving away from conventional energy and into ESG line businesses. And if anything, that seems to have been accelerated by the pandemic. So I think that 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 redeployment of capital into ESG line business is going to be a a major driver um, in in this and and in fact an accelerant um, in the transition. Um, Rightly or wrongly, the pandemic has been associated with ESG and climate um, and, and I think that's probably in the end a good thing for for climate ambition. So other than potentially the airline industry, which obviously has been hit quite hard and was one of the leaders, at least in the adoption of offsets and as a as a recognition in recognition um, of the urgency of decarbonisation, that industry has been obviously badly set back by in its climate ambition by by COVID. But for the majority of other industries that, that we look at, uh, we see, if anything, an acceleration through COVID, um, and and that redeployment of capital uh, will 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 I think um, uh, again be an accelerant in that. Okay, thank you. And then finally, I'd like to end with asking you both the same question, and it's really your own personal point of view on this. Um, the the energy industry is often called out for not doing enough, um, perhaps not doing enough quickly enough in terms of transitioning, doing their their bit to be Paris aligned or, you know, lowering emissions according to whatever targets they're they're setting. Um, Erica, what what do you think of that? Do you think the energy industry is doing enough? Austin Energy, as you can kind of uh, hear from the steps we've been taking, we have a sense of urgency when it comes to climate change. Um, You know, many times it feels like it's two steps forward, one step back when we canvass the market. Uh, and see how you know the technology or you know markets are evolving. So corporates jumping in and renewables be- being competitive are really good. Uh, but the electric market we're in is discussing you know managing stability issues due to intermittent intermittency, uh, which is right now requiring a lot of attention. There's a lot to do, uh, and you know companies you know really who aren't part of the solution kind of need to come to terms with the role that they're playing. We're, we're hopeful, but uh, you know you know, very cautious uh, that things aren't moving fast enough. Yes. Okay. And Scobie, can I put the same question to you? Do you think that the energy industry is on the right track or do you think things need to ramp up a lot from here? Look, I think fundamentally things need to ramp up a lot for everyone across all industries. The the scale of the change that's required is is absolutely uh, mind boggling when you look at the numbers from the IPCC and other sources. I think that it's probably easy to focus on or blame the energy industry but at the end of the day that industry will change when consumer behavior changes what we are focused on is trying to come up with new environmentally differentiated sets of commodities that can be traded in the market and and which for which a price can be can be ascertained um, as a way of giving value to 
to climate differentiated commodities. And, and our view is that, that that really is the way that you accelerate the energy transition by creating a market where there is a premium paid for, for um, climate differentiated commodities and therefore there's an allocation of capital behind that, that premium. Um, we do think it is incumbent on everyone you know, in the energy stack to be aggressively pushing forward uh, in in the decarbonisation journey, and and we're certainly trying to take that that a lead in that in that ourselves. But we all have a long way to go. Okay, thank you. Well, we've reached the end of our time for today. But thank you so much for your time and insights, both of you, Erica and Scobie. It was really appreciated and very very interesting what you had to say. Thank you very much, and thank you to everyone who's listening. Appreciate it. Thank you for the time. Thanks very much, Sal.